Welcome to another episode of Million Dollar Stories, where we get to interview authors from all over the world. Uh, I love learning new information from my guests, and uh, we get to have an open conversation for you guys out there to listen and to watch. Hopefully, you learn something too. Now, as you know, I am a capitalist. I am a free market guy, and that's why I like talking about a man named Adam Smith. And our guest, Jonathan White, wrote a book called Saving Adam Smith, A Tale of Wealth, Transformation and virtue. Thank you so much for being here, Jonathan. I'm really happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, my favorite quote of Adam Smith is, all money is a matter of belief. And man, do I live by that. Number one, I think money's fake. But number two, if somebody gives you their money, it means they believe in you or your solutions. And I think that's how it should be. And so that's why I love the free market and I love capitalism because it's really not about selfishness. It's about how do I serve the world? And as a byproduct, I become rewarded in the process. So let's start off with the genesis of the book. Why did you write this? Well, first of all, let me just say, I share a lot of what you, uh, the sympathy for what you just said. <laughs> I find that, you know, capitalism is an amazing place. Um, to learn how to be yourself, to get fulfillment from being yourself. And imagine being in a closed system. You know, anybody who's been recently to Havana, as I have, you see uh, there's a, a big ministry downtown called the Ministry of Prices, <laughs> the government ministry that sets the prices. <laughs> um, it's crazy. Um, why can't I set my prices? Right. And so I would say I'm in sympathy for the idea that capitalism is a wonderful uh idea in terms of letting people be creative learning people and letting people be themselves i would distinguish between free markets and regulated markets i don't find that the word free market is all that helpful and the reason is because it implies that laissez-faire is the right way to have a market but does that mean that if i get my jollies um selling pictures of little kids, uh, naked kids, that I should be allowed to do that because that's laissez-faire. That's a great point. And we don't typically want to say that's okay. So I'm not in favor of the word free market, but a regulated market, lightly regulated market makes the most sense to me. But anyway, you asked about my book, Saving Adam Smith, Tale of Wealth, Transformation and Virtue. Here it is. <laughs> I got the idea for this book in 1995. When I was perusing a bookstore in Richmond, Virginia, where I'm a prof I'm a professor at the University of Richmond, and um, I went into the econ section, and there's this lovely section of econ books, including The Wealth of Nations, Adam Smith's second book. And there was a lovely paperback edition put out by the Liberty Fund uh, of Adam Smith's first book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And truthfully, I hadn't really read either book to that point, but I did own The Wealth of Nations. And I thought, Gee, having the theory of moral sentiments would be nice to have alongside. So I bought it, took it home, and it was about nine o'clock at night. And I said, well, this will put me to sleep right away, a <laughs> philosophical tome from the 18th century. And I started to read, and I could not put it down. Adam Smith is a wonderful writer, and the topic of this book was so engaging. Um, it's about how do people learn to cooperate with other human beings? How do we get along? And it's that cooperation that allows us to have markets. And that cooperation allows us to get rich. 
And so if you are a believer that humans desire uh, greater wealth, um, that that's a great way to start by looking at Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments. How do we learn to get along? How are we socialized to get along in the world? So can you give our audience sort of a, a rundown on who Adam Smith was? Now, I believe he came from Scotland, right? And his yes. book came out right before, I think he has two books right around 1776, but he didn't use the word capitalism ever. He used free market society, I think is the phrase that he he pinpointed, but um, he's the one that kind of outlined how to create a wealth of nations, you know, pun intended, because that's the title of his book. So uh, he was instrumental in the genesis of the United States of America. Can you give a quick little rundown on him? Sure. He was born in Scotland in um, 1721 or thereabouts. I've got my date. My date is probably wrong. But anyway, um, his father died before he was born. He was raised by his single mother. Uh, he went on to study at Glasgow University and from there went to Oxford for graduate work. And um, from there, he went back to Glasgow where he um, was lecturing and did some other things. Uh, he was then hired to teach at Glasgow, his, his former uh, university, and he became a professor of moral philosophy. And his first book came out in 1759, The Theory of Moral Sentiments. And that book made him famous. It made him so famous that he was able to get a job. He quit his job and he got a gig uh, taking uh, a young gentleman around Europe. You know, back in those days, it was considered part of your education to spend some time in Europe, and Adam Smith had never been there. So this was a great time for him to go to Europe uh, as a tutor to a young man. And uh, he spent a year and a half or two years in Europe, and he got to meet a lot of really influential people and some great economists, too, Kesney among them. And he came back and had always had been working already on his second book, The, the Wealth of Nations which eventually got published in 1776. And you're absolutely right. That book was an inspiration to America because in that book, Adam Smith argued that wealth is not created through colonies, through imperialism, colonialism. Wealth was created by unleashing the forces of freedom. And um, in fact, he made the, the strong point that England was poorer because of having the colonies Individuals in England made a lot of wealth, but the country as a whole is poorer. And we know that, right? Because the British were spending all this money on their troops trying to defend America. And, and there was they were getting a lot more money, spending a lot more money than the colony was worth to them, according to Smith. And in your summary, you have this great quote, selfishness is not enough. So like you said, he was a major proponent of moral philosophy and how it tied into the economy. So what does this phrase even mean? Selfishness is not enough. Well, I do an experiment um, often in class, um, and um, this experiment involves dividing up some money. So half of the class is given uh, a token of paper, and they're given the right to dictate how much money to divide between themselves and another person, between $10. How much do you divide? And um, usually, you know, and you, you need the other person's position and everybody's anonymous. You don't know who the other person's going to be. 
It's done anonymously. And so if you were to say, okay, I'm going to keep $9 for myself and offer $1 to the other person to agree to this trade, typically that other person is going to reject you. And this is very strange because I asked my students, if you were walking out to the parking lot and you saw a dollar bill on the ground, wouldn't you bother to bend over and pick it up? And the answer is yes, everybody would do that. And yet someone is offering you a dollar to agree to this division of $10. Why? What's the difference? And the answer is because we care about the context in which wealth is created. And in terms of that particular game, if you offer less than $2.50 or $3, you'll routinely be rejected. So the instinct for self, if that's all that you cared about is my gain, I would always accept a dollar as opposed to getting nothing. But what if I care about my gain and I care about your gain? In other words, my utility is intertwined with your utility in a way. And this is the version of the world that Adam Smith thought we lived in. So if you want, I'll give you a brief rundown of his book, if that would be helpful. Please. Yes, yeah. this is. Uh, and I've, I've heard of that study, by the way. It's pretty incredible, guys. If You, you can actually look that up. That's a, a famous study that shows that yeah. if you try to give money away, they will always evaluate how much you're getting, too. So pretty fascinating. Yeah. But yeah, please give a quick rundown on the book. OK, so the quick rundown of the book, as you may know, Adam Smith is often famous for a so-called invisible hand. And people ascribe the invisible hand to greed. It's just your instinct for self. And that is clearly wrong, at least in Adam Smith's view. Adam Smith's saying, yes, we're all born with a strong instinct for self. I mean, the baby comes out of the womb, and what does the baby do? The baby is crying, and it's clearing its lungs, of course, but it's also saying, hey, I'm here. Give me comfort. Give me shelter. Give me food. And the baby cries and cries and cries for much of its early months. And so there's no question that humans have a strong instinct for self. But Smith's argument is that as we grow, as we mature, we develop other strong instincts. And one of these other strong instincts is to feel what you're feeling. We have an instinct of fellow feeling. I can feel what you're feeling. And so, for example, the mother is bending down over the child, and they're playing with the child, and there's happiness and cooing and this, that, and the other, and everybody's happy. They're sharing feelings, and everything is fine. Now, imagine a couple of years go by, the baby's two and a half or three, and the mother and the kid are in this lovely state of agreement of, we each see the world the same way. I feel what you feel, and we both feel happy, and that's a great thing. And now the baby takes a clump of mashed potatoes and throws it in the face of a baby brother. Is that mother going to be in that state of fellow feeling anymore? No, that state of fellow feeling is broken. That child is old enough to know at that age that that's wrong. And so that link between mother and child is broken. So basically, Adam Smith is saying, yes, we're born with a whole bunch of instincts. One of the instincts is for self. The other is to connect with you. That's a very strong connection that I have the ability to feel what you feel, and I have a strong desire to get into emotional equilibrium with you. And you see this all the time. Uh, two people, uh, when I was um, 
Younger, I worked out in Montana one summer. And when people drove pickup trucks long distances on dusty roads and you crossed another pickup truck, you would stop and you would chat. And what's the first thing you say? You say, wow, it's incredibly hot this week, isn't it? Well, a statement, what is a statement like that? It's banal, but what is it intended to do? It's intended to show that you see the world from the same perspective and you're, you're in alignment with that other person. So getting into emotional equilibrium is what we do with people in our group. And I think this came out in the Sam Fleischaker interview that you did. We care about people in our group. We want to be in alignment with people in our group. And of course, it's much harder to be in alignment with people who aren't in our group. But in any event, think of the power of these instincts. Think of teenagers and how strong the social fitting in motive is. I want to fit in with my peers. It's just an incredibly powerful instinct. And to claim that the only thing we need to worry about is instinct for self and to ignore this instinct we have to fit in with others, it's just crazy because it's such a powerful instinct that we have in business, in uh, government, in all stretches of the world. It's, it's a really powerful instinct. Now, there's one other thing I want to add. Um, I have the instinct to feel what you feel, um, but I also have a mind. And I use my rational mind to ask the question, are you responding appropriately to your circumstance? So imagine you encounter a close friend and your close friend is just crying inconsolably. And you say, what's the matter? What's the matter? And your friend says, oh, I have a paper cut. What? You're crying inconsolably over a paper cut? It's very hard for us to get into emotional equilibrium with that friend at that point because they haven't responded appropriately to their circumstance. On the other hand, if your friend had said, I just learned that my dear mother died and we were so close, well, then, of course, you can understand why your friend would be inconsolable. And you're trying to get into sympathy, but maybe you haven't lost your mother yet. You're trying to get into sympathy. You're doing your best, but it's always imperfect. We can never perfectly get in sympathy with another person, even though we try hard on some occasions. But we do judge, in this case, that that friend's uh, inconsolable crying was appropriate if their mother had died. So we have judgment. We have feelings and we have judgments, and they go together when you're trying to engage in it create an emotional equilibrium, you've got both your feelings and you've got your judgment. So it's to Adam Smith, I think he's got a wonderful phrase I use in my book. It's the best head joined to the, to the best heart. So we've got our feelings and we've got our mind and they both work. He has another great quote and it does tie in with what you're saying. And it says, uh, I really had no idea that he was such a, uh, he had a very stoic uh, view on life. And the quote is, yeah. The first thing you have to know is yourself. A man who knows himself can step outside himself and watch his own reactions like an observer. Very much like a Carl Jung philosophy, you know, those who look in those who look outside dream, those who look inside awake. I just love that quote. <laughs> and and what you're saying here is you first have to know yourself, right? Human beings are born in this world, they're always thinking about themselves. 
But in order for you to connect with others, you need to know yourself first. And you have those two aspects, you can become a dangerous individual. And that's how you can, I guess, keep your morals and virtues intact if you know yourself and you know how to connect with others. So it, does that all tie together? Yeah, and you're raising a really good point. I can know what my uh, what the ethical thing to do is, but I may not have the self-control to do it. So Smith very much was a Stoic in the sense he believed very strongly in self-control. And so when, when we talk about knowing yourself, it's knowing your limits and knowing how to develop that self-control, which is a really important virtue for Adam Smith. So in your book, it, you have this uh, phrase here, in saving Adam Smith, he is tortured enough to return. Wait, so... But 200 years later, his spirit is tortured by the caricatures we remember in his name. Are you saying that as time goes on, basically we fall apart, we fall away from his teachings and his viewpoints, or is society starting to look back on Adam Smith and paint him in a negative light? Is that what you're noticing? Um, yes. Um, basically, um, Adam Smith became, I think, quite misunderstood. There was a famous um, argument in the 19th century from the Germans that Adam's two books were disconnected, that his book on philosophy and morals, the theory of moral sentiments, was his earlier book. And it was written when he was a young and immature kid. And then his later book, The Wealth of Nations, is when he was a more mature and knew what he was talking about. And so that the two books can't really be connected. Uh, his first book on ethics was kind of a pie in the sky, and we can ignore that and just read The Wealth of Nations. And so that idea, I think, has been thoroughly um, debunked, in fact, by Adam Smith himself, who at the end of his life basically said, the theory of moral sentiments is my favorite book. So it'd be strange for him to say <laughs> it that. Fit him, thought, even on his deathbed, it still fit him. Yeah, if, if he thought it was a bad book and out of, uh, you know, no longer in... Uh, operable, why would he say that's his favorite book? Um, and then we he became misunderstood, I think, in the 20th century, when people began to take snippets of his work, single quotes. Um, it's not from, you know, from the benevolence of the butcher or baker that we seek their uh, services, we seek them out of our own interest, out of their own interest. And from that one single quote, everybody took Smith to mean that self-interest is the only instinct that matters. We forgot about the instinct to connect with other people. All that matters is what, what do I get? And that was the only, what do I feel, not what, what do other people feel? And so people forgot all about that in the 20th century. And Smith became known as uh, the guy who personified greed and who supported the idea that greed is good. And of course, that's that's diametrically opposed. And Adam Smith wrote at length about greed in a highly negative fashion. And then along around mid-1970s, the University of Glasgow began a huge project to celebrate the, the bicentennial of the Wealth of Nations in 1976. And so they commissioned all of these studies of the, the entire works of Adam Smith. And that started to come out in 1976. Over the next couple of years, more books came out. So now I think there are six volumes on the collected works of Adam Smith. And that spurned this incredible scholarship 
revival of Adam Smith, which I've written about separately. And out of that came, first of all, very clearly the idea that The Theory of Moral Sentiments is a really important book to read before you read The Wealth of Nations, because that provides the ethical context for exchange. So there's this milieu, which is an ethical milieu. And within that, we exchange stuff. And it doesn't mean that we forget about the ethical milieu. Um, It's there all the time operating in the background. And anyway, I've probably said enough on that at the moment. Well, uh, in our interview with Sam uh, Fleischacker, we did talk a lot about empathy. And uh, what you're talking about is Adam Smith was uh, preaching how important empathy was. And uh, so it makes me think of the, the reason why capitalism works is because it's really not about let me take all the money and keep it to myself. It's if you're going to work with me, what's a good price for me to pay you what's a good what what's a, a good wage and if that works for you you're going to work with me you're going to work for me it works out i'm going to offer something to the world and if it works for you you're going to pay me money now i believe the people who are the most selfish are always worried about what other people make right it's not about the because it, it, it's basically compare it's comparison theory right it's only based off of are they making more than me and if so i'm totally against it so I think that's becoming more of a trend in society, maybe because I'm more uh, I'm more aware than ever what's happening. Uh, I'm I'm more involved with uh, you know what what the politics of this world or what they're trying to teach, what the school system's doing, and I just think that we're going in a direction where it's all about selfishness, right? You got social media, so the trend is not good, and we're getting away from empathy and selflessness. And one last piece I will want to talk on is. Jim Rohn has this amazing quote. Nobody really cares about your need. They only care about your seed, right? It's very biblical. And I think Adam Smith's teachings go back to, um, goes back to the Bible quite a bit, right? You deliver, you serve the many and for service to the many leads to greatness. So it doesn't start with greatness. You have to serve many people. And I think we're getting away from that because it's not what you can do for your country. It's what can the country do for you? It starts with what? Give me something first and then I'll think about it. Well, it doesn't work that way. So the trend is not good. What are you seeing and why do you believe this is going away? Well, I wouldn't necessarily agree. I think it would probably go the other way. I I would think we're much more interested in understanding empathy today than we ever were in the past. Really? Yeah. Um, However, the cloud of obnoxiousness may be so big that it's hard to see the bigger picture. Um, But I entirely, one of the the things that I would add to your discussion is the idea of market structure, because a lot of times I don't necessarily pay, I don't have a discussion of you about what you think you should earn or anything like that. I just say, this is the going wage for uh, electricians. This is the going wage for plumbers. And if the market is, as you stated, free, and if the market is competitive, there's a competitive market wage, and I roughly know what that is. And of course, there's a premium you might pay for a really special artisan who does very special work, and that would put them in a different class of worker. But generally, if it's a competitive market, this is this is what you would pay. So the 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 debate isn't over the price so much. Now it's interesting 
Um, I, I have taught a lot of MBA students. And when you talk about markets and you ask who's in favor of the market, everybody raises their hand. Yes, I'm in favor of the market. And then you dig down deep and you ask them, do you understand that in a free market under perfectly competitive conditions, profit falls to zero in the long run? That is economic profit falls to zero in the long run. And you're looking at me like, this is a weird concept, but basically economic profit includes all opportunity costs. So if I'm a farmer and I'm already accounting for the cost of my labor in the product that I'm selling, then let's just say my cost of operations, you know, and by, by my opportunity cost, I'm saying I could get a job in a factory earning 30000 a year. So when I'm factoring in my costs of operating my farm, I include the opportunity cost of my time. So if all of my costs amount to, say, 100 grand, of which 30 grand is the opportunity cost of my time, and I'm selling at 140, I'm making $40,000 economic profit. And what that means is I'm making $40,000 in excess of what I could make if I were to sell my labor for the factory and not be a farmer. And economic profit is the key way that resources flow. Because let's imagine everybody gets into farming, so the price of corn goes down. And now this farmer is only making $100,000 in revenue. They've got $100,000 in cost. Their economic profit is zero. They're making exactly the same as what their labor is worth at its next highest occupation. And that's what will happen in a competitive market. That's inevitably, look, open up any Econ 101 textbook and look up long-run profit in a competitive market, it will fall to zero. And um, if, on the other hand, there's so many people in farming that, that the revenue falls to 80,000, well, now you're saying the farmer is making an economic loss of 20, even though their accounting profit is showing them a gain, their economic profit is a loss, and that farmer will leave that business and go back to their factory job. And that's why resources flow in and out of different areas. It's because of economic profit, not so much accounting profit, but economic profit. So when I ask my MBA students, how many of you want your economic profit to go to zero? They, they inevitably say they don't. They want to have a rigged market. They don't like perfect competition. They want to have, at the very least, an oligopoly and even better, a monopoly. So they want to have a rigged market. So unfortunately, when I look at the world we're living in, I'm not so much worried about empathy. I am worried about the structure of our economy and the way in which a lot of industries have become more consolidated. They're becoming oligopolies and monopolies, which will constrain the creative spirit of the American people and will raise prices, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And you know, you know the rest of the story. I see a major push, maybe because I'm in a bubble. I may be, I don't know, but I see a major push for entrepreneurial uh, activity from young individuals all over the world. I see them create multiple revenue streams, start to get into this game of uh, advertising, podcast, uh, brand building. So I think this is a great movement. And I think it does come from what you just talked about, where 
you're starting to see these major industries, major companies consolidate power. And uh, I think that scares a lot of people. So they're starting their own business. I see an entrepreneurial spirit getting stronger and stronger. Do you believe that's happening? Or am, am, am I in a bubble and you're seeing something different? No, I think the world we're living in is in some ways making it easier for people to get started. Um, maybe not in music, but maybe in many other areas. <laughs> yeah, right. Um, it, it is becoming easier in many ways to start your own business. Um, there's a there's a push, as you probably are aware, to deregulate some businesses. You know, maybe we don't need to have so many regulations about people who are doing hands nail salon treatments or something like that. Maybe we should just let people do whatever they want. Um, so I think there's a there's a push to allow people to express themselves through their own business adventures. And I would say, uh, just from a quick conversation, knowing a little bit about your background, would you classify yourself as a capitalist? Um, I'm not sure I love the word capitalist either, <laughs> as opposed to free market. Um, I am a moderate in probably most things. And so I, I definitely believe that markets are the way to move forward and the way generally that we want to you know, use resources. The market force is generally preferable to other forces. And yet I also feel like we're learning a lot about um, how to do a better job regulating certain markets. So, for example, we know now how so much happens in the first couple of years of birth um, in terms of brain development. Uh, do we simply take a laissez-faire approach to that? Um, or do we basically say we know that? Kids who go to pre-K um, oftentimes get better brain development than other kids. Maybe that's not a long-term effect, but it, maybe it's just a short-term effect. Um, but I think there are interventions. Adam Smith was in favor of intervening with regard to education. He wanted government to provide education for the poor. And I think we're learning more about when and how that education should take place. And I would be in favor of earlier rather than later. I'll give you a quick example. Yes. My wife was born in, uh, sorry, my wife gave birth to two kids in England. And she stayed in the hospital probably three days with each birth. And when she went home, a nurse went with her to get her help her get set up. And then a nurse came back once a week for like three months to see what issues and problems she was having, show her how to breastfeed, uh, deal with other issues. And that's giving really good educational training to young people particularly when we have fragmented families, we no longer have grandmothers around and aunts and uncles and, you know, whatever to help young people. And in America, you go in for childbirth, you go home the same day. There's no nurse practitioner to help, help, help you learn how to become a mother. It's all, hey, you're on your own, take your kid and go. And I, I think that that is short-sighted. I think we could really save ourselves a lot of problems later on if we took a longer view of what does it mean to educate uh, for the for the next generation. Hmm. Another quote that uh, Adam Smith has, and I don't know in which book, but it says, uh, to feel much for others and little for ourselves, to restrain our selfishness and exercise our benevolent affections constitute the perfect perfection of human nature. 
Now that ties in with something that happened to me uh, when I was struggling with business. And uh, I was always thinking of myself, my gas bill, uh, not paying my mortgage, my car loan, all of that. I could, I was only thinking about me. So I would always focus on me during a sale or a potential sale, which led to no sale. I would always be focusing on me so much that that I would never really get anywhere. Now, what happened was something, a defining moment where I said, you know what? An individual came to me. I have no idea who this guy is, but he seems very successful. Forget about me. I need to prove myself to this individual. And what I did was I did my services for him for $0. Then this guy's a multimillionaire. And I did my services for him whenever it comes to turning a book into a bestseller, all this stuff with no cost at all associated with it. He was so thankful. He invited me to an event. I traveled there. And then afterwards, and by the way, I slept in my car because I didn't have any money. For, forget about me. Only serve this guy. Now, when I worked with him and I saw him at that event, he was so appreciative. He set me up with many other people that he trusted. He said, you did such great work for me. I'm going to put you in touch. And there you go. You have a lot of clients. Now, I didn't think that was pop, uh, was going to happen, but it really was the launch pad. And it did teach me the ultimate lesson that forget about you. Quit worrying about your own problems, your own thoughts, all that, and only think of them. And so that's why I love this entrepreneurial game. And the reason why I think that it works so well is because it embodies the hero's journey. And so what is the hero's journey? It's an individual who goes into a territory of complete chaos unknown variables struggle and then obtains the reward. So what is happening in society? I think they're saying, you know what? Here's an individual payment for just being alive. You know what? The government will take care of you. Here you go. Now that sounds like empathy. Hey, we're going to take care of you, but you're robbing the individual of their own hero's journey. Psychologically, when you become a person of value and you help others around you and you help them obtain the reward, it does something to your self-esteem, which makes you feel better, become better, and more valuable to yourself and to your family and to those around you. So that's why I think Adam Smith was so crucial because he taught stuff like that, but we're going away from it because people are confu confusing empathy for maybe uh, uh, another way of looking at it where it's empathy uh, you don't have well, what it takes, so let me take care of you. But well, no, I think the word you. you're looking for is pity. Pity. Maybe that's, that's exactly it. Yes. Pity. Great. I'm glad you said that. And that, that clearly is um, totally inappropriate to treat somebody with pity um, and sympathy. Um, typically, what is trying to judge whether their circumstance is appropriate, whether they're their emotional response is appropriate to their circumstance. So if somebody, for example, I'll just throw out an example. Suppose somebody has had cancer and they've got all these huge medical bills and there is an event to try to raise money to help them pay some of their medical bills and they got a young kid, then I think our heart goes out to them and we would say it's appropriate to help them in that circumstance. But if somebody else happens to just be let's just say not terribly motivated they haven't they're not under any depression but all they want to do is just play games and they're not really interested in taking charge of themselves then in the virtue ethics mode they would say they don't show proper prudence prudence is showing proper regard for your future self and someone who sits around all day and doesn't do anything 
to help pay the bills at the end of the month, they're not showing proper prudence. So you're a person of virtue, perhaps I'm a person of virtue, and we would judge their behavior to be inappropriate to their circumstance, and we would not wish to help them in that case. So I agree with you entirely. If somebody just wants a handout, not a hand up, then, and they're perfectly capable of working, then we would judge their behavior to be maybe not appropriate to to what they're asking for. Yeah. So the, the definition of empathy is being misconstrued, I think, in society. So I believe it's in your best interest to have you be the hero of your own story and not someone else, right? Not because it's going to be the easy path and it's going to be the solution that's going to be like a light switch, but what it teaches you is what it makes you a man or a woman of principle. And so that is the real reward for now and forever. So I think that's an, one thing that Adam Smith talks about, but uh, I may be wrong. It's, it seems like he, uh, he had virtues and morals and, and, and core values that you just, he, unbreakable. And that's significant. Well, I wouldn't use the word unbreakable <laughs> because in virtue ethics, we're having, we're on a journey, we're having a conversation, we're trying to figure out what's right and wrong. Um, so, for example, uh, another famous philosopher is Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant would say it's never right or ethical to lie. Even if a murderer comes to your door and wants to kill your father and he asks you, where's your father? You're legally, I mean, not legally, you are morally bound to tell the truth where your father is so the murderer can go murder him. And you and I would say that's absolutely crazy. I, we think it's a generally good idea not to lie, but I wouldn't have any unbreakable rules about it. If a murderer came to my door, I would lie. I'd say, my dad went to Europe. He'll be back in six months. So... Um, I wouldn't say it's unbreakable, but in virtue ethics, we strive, we're on a journey, um, we try to be a good person, but we, we make mistakes and we learn from our mistakes. And the key thing that you nailed a minute ago was Adam Smith's theory of moral sentiments is about not just feeling what other people feel, but judging that what they feel is appropriate to their circumstances. And that's where the judgment comes in. If somebody is feeling like, oh, poor me, I don't have enough to eat, but they have failed to be prudent and go out and gather for their own stead, then we it's hard for us to be in emotional equilibrium with them um, under that circumstance. So theory of moral sentiments is not about simply, oh, I feel your pain, whatever your pain happens to be. Was Adam Smith a Christian? <laughs> uh, on the surface, yes. You know that most of our um, founding fathers in America were Christians of a particular variety. Yep. Um, they had a particular view that God created the earth and then God stepped back and allowed the rules of nature to, to take their course. Um, and Adam Smith probably had that kind of a conception of God. Um, this was this was a big issue between him and his best friend David Hume. David Hume got blackballed because he had, he said he was an atheist. And Adam Smith wrote a lot about God in the theory of moral sentiments, but I'm not. But I but I wonder whether God was there kind of as a placeholder, um, as opposed to God really playing this key role. Others, this it's a contentious issue. Your your question is a great one, but it's a contentious one. <laughs> 
I always want, yeah, I don't know much, but I know that most of the founding fathers had some type of variation of Christianity. So I didn't know if he was one of them. So it's interesting. Outside of your own book, is there a book that changed your life? I always keep Rich Dad, Poor Dad behind me spinning simply because it's the one that set me free mentally and it put me on a path of entrepreneurship all the way. So uh, is uh, there which, one- that, Which book do you have spinning behind you? Rich Dad, Poor Dad by Robert Kiyosaki. Uh-huh. And that's my book, Million Dollar Book. And so there are very, both of them are significant well, to me. So, well, um, when I was a kid, I broke my leg and I was, you know, I'd kind of been a jock playing a lot of sports and I was forced to spend like three months in bed with a, with a big, huge cast on. And so I began to pick up books. And one of them I picked up was by uh, Herman Hesse and the book was Damien. And it's a book, it's a coming of age book about good and evil. And so it just kind of really affected me emotionally. Um, here's my entree. I was a naive little kid, and suddenly I'm thrown in with evil, that there's evil in the world. And and that was that got me started on my interest in reading and so on and so forth. Wow. I, I don't know that book. What's it called? Uh, Damien, D-E-M-I-A-N. Got it. By Herman Hesse, H-E-S-S-E. And do you still believe we're in a spiritual war? A spiritual war? Yes. Um, well, what do you mean by that? So good and evil, I believe we are. Oh. Yeah. So oh, when you were talking about saying. that book, it put you on the path to probably falling in love with reading and writing. Um, it might be the genesis of some of the things that you uh, took oh, on as okay. a kid. But yeah. when it Thank comes you. to see. spiritual warfare, I believe we are. So do you do you believe that too? Um, some some days I do. Um some days I don't. I, there's a longer story, which I, I won't tell you now, but I'll tell you off screen um, what the story is. But basically, I fundamentally am a believer in human goodness. I believe in hell as being something here on earth as when we're disassociated from God. And that's what hell is. Yeah. And and that we all have the capacity and the capability, most of us have the capacity and capability to um, to find light, to find truth, to find healing. Um, I I do think Adam Smith was wrong about one key point, which is he opens up the theory of moral sentiments with a phrase that even the greatest ruffian um, has the ability to feel what other people feel. Uh, and that's not quite correct. We know today that there are people who are psychopaths who don't have the ability to to feel oxytocin. Oxytocin is the hormone that bonds us with others. Um, and by the way, have you interviewed Paul Zak yet? Mm, I don't think so. Okay, well, he's somebody I think I'd recommend that you talk to. He's the guy who has brought in uh, hormones into this discussion of economics. So he's written oh, about- Oh, I, I, I have not interviewed him then. Yes, yeah, so- oh, yeah. Well, anyway, Paul was the one who discovered oxytocin as a driver of human behaviors uh, and human bonding. He's a great person to talk to. He's out in Southern California. Um, and um, in any event, uh, I forgot how we got on this topic, except good and evil, except to say there are sociopaths who don't have the receptor cells to pick up oxytocin. Therefore, they physically, chemically cannot feel what other people feel. 
And then, therefore, they don't care what horrors they do in the world because they don't ever feel your pain. They may fake it. They may pretend to feel your pain in order so you'll trust them and you'll give them a bunch of money. But really, they don't care at all what you feel. So there are people who don't have the capacity physically to feel what other people feel. And Paul Zach is a great person to talk to about that. I got to look him up. Now, I do agree with you that hell can be on earth and you can put yourself in there. Now, a quick little story. Are you a Jordan Peterson fan? I don't know Jordan Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist. He talks a little bit about, you know, how Carl Jung theory, Frederick Nietzsche, all that. But he has this amazing story and it says uh, uh, the origin of the word sin. It's actually an archery term and it means to miss the mark. So the first time sin ever pops up in any human, any human language, it means to miss the mark. Now, what he believes is, is what if you're punished by your sins, not for your sins? It's not that you curse and you lie and you cheat and then you eventually go to hell. What if every time you sin, you miss the mark and therefore you are punished for missing the mark? If you lie to someone, if you cheat, if you get something through some type of evil act, maybe you are going to be punished for or by it. And so- you are going to be alone. You're always going to be looking over your shoulder. Your your soul's not going to you know feel right. And so it makes so much sense that you automatically, through your own actions, can put yourself in hell. It's a great way to look at it. Do you remember um, back in the fifties, forties, and fifties? They had Hollywood had ethical guidelines they had to follow. I didn't know this their, in all of their movies. And one of those ethical guidelines is the bad guys had to be punished. They couldn't get away with it. And so Hollywood had, we always think about Hollywood has a happy ending. Part of that was because of the guide that says you can't have the bad guys get away with it. Um, There was a famous Alfred Hitchcock series. um, Was it? No, it wasn't Alfred Hitchcock. It was the um, Twilight Zone. And in the Twilight Zone series, a burglar is caught in the middle of an act and the burglar goes to some holding place and it turns out um he's dead he's been he's been shot by the police and so he's looking around and um there's a portly gentleman there who we interpret as being god and and the guy's saying well where am i where am i and and the person says well you're you're here with me you're in the afterlife and and the guy's saying well well um I want some girls. I want some money. And the guy's saying, sure, sure, whatever you want. And he's giving him a million dollars. He's hooking him up with women. When he goes out to gamble, he always wins. And after about a month of this, the guy starts to go crazy. He starts to go insane. And <laughs> so um, the guy's stopping the fat. The uh, He calls him a fat man. I'm sorry, that, that word is not appropriate anymore. But he um, he calls him that and he says, Hey, I don't like it that I can get any woman I want. There's no chase anymore. I don't like it that every job, I, every con job I pull, I automatically win. All the fun's gone out of it. And he says, oh, well, uh, that's the world you're living in. And the guy says, yeah, but this doesn't sound like heaven. And the, and the other man starts to laugh. And we know that he's in hell. <laughs> oh, man. He's getting everything he wants and he's in hell. I'll send you a link to that. Oh, please send me the link to that. That is incredible. That I is will. so spot on. Isn't that amazing how yeah. 
you, it's 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 pretty wild how there's if you do get everything you want, it kind of takes away uh, the, the the joy, right? There's no struggle. There's no struggle. You if you rob a man of struggle, you rob a man of purpose. I really believe that. So yeah, and you have to feel pain. You have to you know experience that. Excellent. I'm glad you brought that up. So send me that link. Fascinating guys. The book. It is, uh, it's on Amazon, Saving Adam Smith, A Tale of Wealth, Transformation, and Virtue. Great conversation with Jonathan White. Do you have a uh, website or any social media channel that you want to promote so people can follow you or look you up? Yeah, just go to the University of Richmond, look up Jonathan White, W-I-G-H-T, you'll find my webpage. Beautiful. Yeah, and you have, uh, I think you have that other book that's, it's out there, Ethics and Economics. So he has another one out there, look him up. Uh, He's a free market Appreciate guy it. with some regulation, obviously, uh, is on the same side as us when it comes to the, the history. So uh, we like him here. So get in touch with him, follow him. And uh, I really appreciate your time here, Jonathan. Really means a lot. Thanks so much. Really enjoyed it. Take care. Now, remember, guys, a million dollar book will lead to a million dollar life. Right on.